a child's psychosocial makeup and home and school environments are better predictors of online risk than any technology a child uses. So it's what's going on in the child's head, home, and school that predicts risk or well-being, online and offline. And now we know that there's total overlap and really no distinction between online and offline. It's just their life. You're listening to Anne Collier. Anne is a writer and a youth advocate that has been chronicling the public discussion about youth and digital media since 1997. Anne is also the founder and the executive director of the Net Safety Collaborative, a nonprofit organization that, among other initiatives, created the social media helpline for U.S. schools. This was a very timely conversation conducted while the world is under lockdown. And our kids' screen time is skyrocketing to new heights. I wanted an expert advice on screen time. Is it good? Is it bad? And how can we as parents help our kids navigate their newly found internet freedom without being too controlling? We recorded this conversation remotely due to COVID-19, and so sound is a bit choppy. I encourage you to look beyond that as Anne's point of view is refreshing and it might surprise you. Enjoy. I'm Guy Michelin and this is Raising to Rise, a show about the parents, educators and mentors of kids who made it to the top of their game. Every week we'll identify patterns and pieces of advice that hopefully will serve you while on the journey of raising your own kids. And welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks. I am super excited to have you. And uh, so we're having this interview essentially in a time where most households in the world, I think, are under lockdowns for weeks now. And with that, kids' screens time have grown exponentially and brought a lot of challenges. And so I'm curious, as a, someone who's a world expert on digital child safety, what advice can you give parents these days? Well, I think a really good way to look at this is as an opportunity. And I know that's hard when people have children at home and work at home and everything's kind of happening all at once. But if we can just sort of step back and... try at times, at quiet moments, to see it differently, there are some opportunities, really, to spend time on screen with our kids. There's a really wonderful media professor in the UK, Stephen Heppel, who's also a grandfather, who, through a video that I stumbled upon a few years ago, taught me about experiential learning in digital media with children and how, if you're child is a, an avid gamer or there are certain apps that they particularly love, spend some time with them in that game or in that app. You don't have to be a gamer yourself. You don't have to be all digitally literate or understand it as well as they do. But take that chance to ask them questions. Don't be annoying. Don't like disrupt the game. But every now and then, ask them why they ducked behind that wall or why they chose to take that action. You can find out a lot about your child and how they make decisions and what they love by spending some time on screen with them. And you can talk about 
safety type things in the flow in, in a very natural way. But hopefully not too heavy handed because then the magic goes away. Got it. Okay. I'm going to do it today. My son is very <laughs> much into this uh, typing games and I've been watching it from afar, but I guess that's a good point. I can use it as a way to get closer to him. And one of the topics that you write extensively about is screen time. And so I'm curious, as parents, how should we think about screen time? Is that a necessary evil? Is that a good thing? Screen time is a really important topic, but I think it's been kind of misused or abused in a way. So much of the way we think about kids and digital media is very negative and comes out of our fears and concerns as adults. When we're talking about screen time, we're also talking about something way too general and really unrealistic. Screens, everything, a gazillion things happen on our screens, right? We check the weather, we write our friends, we socialize on screens, we order takeout, we play games, and on and on and on. And so measuring screen time is what more and more researchers now are calling a blunt instrument measuring tool. It doesn't tell us much. And so it's really all about what happens on the screen in a particular moment and the context around that. And that's where the research is going now. I didn't think about it this way. So what should I as a parent do today? What's the practical advice that we should give parents these days as it comes to the screens? The short answer is basically pay attention, but not too much attention. There's just sort of a right balance. And it's pay attention to each child, not make a decision about how much time all of your children need to spend on screen or not. It's really a calibration, both ongoing with a single child, because they're changing all the time, as is the technology. But also with all the children in your family, each one is an individual growing and changing at different rates. And I know that sounds like a lot, but it doesn't have to be heavy handed. It doesn't have to be controlling. It really is more about, does this seem to be what this child is doing on this screen at this moment? Is this working? Is this a good thing? And you can help your child start thinking about that themselves. Is this serving me right now? And maybe I should be doing something else. Am I getting too frustrated? Or should I maybe go get a little exercise right now? Because we need to teach our children to listen to their bodies. And we have to be sure that they know that they need the basics in life, enough sleep, a little bit of exercise, a decent diet, and social interaction. So finding those in balance. Attention is what our children need. They don't need us to be hovering all the time like helicopters. They don't need us to be drone parents, but they do need our attention. Actually, our children are not being destroyed and they weren't the first users of the smartphones. Actually, it was parents. And so some wise researchers have since said that Parents, if they get buried in their smartphones, children may act out because they want more attention from their parents. And that first generation of 
Smartphone users may have gone a little overboard for a while and needed to pull back. And I think that's what the digital well-being and time well spent sort of counter movements developed from. And the public discussion continues to move on, but often with a way too negative undertone. You mentioned digital well-being. How would you define digital well-being? I don't really like the term very much. <laughs> I think it's really just well-being. And each one of us sort of has a formula for how it's defined. We can talk about devices if we want. We know that smartphones, of course, are designed to hold our attention and grab our attention with notifications and everything. But the other part of what smartphones are like is that so much is on them. Just about every aspect of our lives is represented on that little screen. And so we did need to get more mindful about how we use them, but they're not inherently evil or destructive or harmful. And we're not inherently just potential victims and reactors to technology. And I think it's the same thing with our children. We don't, do we really want to see them just as sitting ducks and potential victims where technology is concerned? I don't think so. So the time well spent movement is really more about agency and thoughtfulness and mindfulness and we all need to apply it to ourselves and we can help our children do that too and see them as stakeholders in their own well-being and that of their friends and peers and their communities and so how do we do that how do we give them the tools to know what to do online i think we give them the tools of how to be and what to do online by modeling good digital behavior and activity for them and helping to guide them as long as they'll listen because the influences on them shift a little bit as they grow up and become more social. And I think it really is more about a normal family dynamic, however you define that as a family. <laughs> My brain is just moving so fast because there's so much research I could tell you about. For example, Back at the end of the last decade, the first national task force I served on was at Harvard Berkman Klein Center. And there were a number of NGOs and remember MySpace, they were there, Fox Interactive, and certainly Facebook and whatever platforms we had at the time. And we did a complete review of the youth online risk literature through that decade in North America and partly in Europe. And we discovered that it's the kids who are most at risk online are those who are most at risk or vulnerable offline. So it's not that all kids are equally at risk in digital media or using digital technology. If you have a strong family environment, if you have a strong family narrative, and I'll explain that in a minute, your children are probably going to be just fine because resilience is an important thing to develop in life. It's a true safeguard. So it's the kids who have 
special issues that they're dealing with, whether they're special ed students, have disabilities, or they're LGBTQ youth, or they come from a home where there's conflict, or they live in a tough neighborhood and they're dealing with trauma, those are the children that we need to worry about. But if a child grows up in a family, single parent or, or both parents were mostly raised by grandparents or whatever, whatever the environment, if there's love, if there's engagement and attention, then they're probably going to just be fine online. And I think that's a really important research finding that we can take to heart. Got it. So I totally understand what you're saying. It's just, I'm, I'm looking, so this week, my son, he sent a, an email to his teacher and the teacher basically wrote back that it was kind of inappropriate. He sent her like a video on YouTube. And at the beginning, I was furious with my son, but then I realized that it's the first time he has an inbox. I actually didn't know he has an inbox from school and nobody taught him. He was so excited, but nobody taught him that there are rules on what you're sending an email. It cannot, it cannot be changed. It's like it's out there. And so I hear you, but I do feel that there is some role that I need to play here in terms of educating him on what are the rules of engagement when you get into this digital world. How do I set them up for success and not being too controlling or not hovering over them, as you say? Guy, I can't tell you that. <laughs> I don't know. You know what your role is in that situation. There are so many answers to that question, really. First of all, you and your son and his teacher are dealing with an extraordinary set of circumstances. This is no time for perfectionism. This is no time to have high expectations for everything going super well. The second thing is that that was an important life lesson children learn as they go. It's all trial and error. That's what life is. And so he learned maybe a hard lesson and maybe it was embarrassing. You hear that students in college are emailing their professors very inappropriately and how wonderful that your son is learning that now. He's learning how to be respectful in written form in an online environment. And that is a priceless life lesson. So it's all good, I feel. Easy for me to say, right? But. <laughs> okay, that's a great perspective uh, on things. So I want to take you to 2016. You gave a TEDx talk about digital citizenship. Yeah. So would you mind explaining a couple of sentences to the listeners? What is digital citizenship? We don't know yet. That's the short answer. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it, it's very timely that you ask right now because Harvard's Berkman Klein Center just came out with a paper that reviewed 35 frameworks for teaching digital citizenship around the world. Among those frameworks, they identified 17 elements of digital citizenship. In our country, I feel, unfortunately, it has become sort of a behavior management tool in U.S. K-12 schools. There is some discussion about civic engagement, which I think is a big part of citizenship, both online and offline, finding how you can act and be 
in a society, how you develop that sense of belonging and what practices grow up around it, I think is really more what citizenship is about than netiquette or good digital behavior. And what resources for parents that want to help their kids become good digital citizens, what resources would you recommend that we can tap into? I think probably the best thing a parent could do who's just not into like reading research is to read a wonderful book that just came out last year called Spark Change. And it's really about digital citizenship in action. And it's written by a 12-year-old girl named Olivia Van Ledja and her mother, Cynthia Merrill, who is an educator herself. And the two of them wrote this book about Olivia's journey as a digital activist. And it's an interesting story because Olivia, or who goes by Liv, who has created these little video snippets called The Live Bits and has more than 40,000 followers on both Twitter and Instagram, got her start in a really tough situation in first and second grade. It lasted a couple of school years and it was a bullying situation that was making Liv very, very sad. And her mother had been teaching pre-service educators at University of New Hampshire using video. And she would use video to have the teachers or the, the student teachers talk about their experience in the classroom and learn by reflecting on and articulating it on camera. So Cynthia told her daughter that if you're feeling really sad, you love to read, why don't you talk about books on video? And in a way it was to sort of help Liv get her self-esteem back, but also to just have a distraction so that she wasn't thinking about this tough situation at school. Well, it wasn't long before Liv was actually posting these little video snippets about the book she was reading on her mother's Instagram account. And Cynthia was fine with that, but Liv went a lot farther than Cynthia ever expected her to do. And what's sweet is that the authors of these children's books were fascinated by what this child was saying about their books. And so her following on Twitter and Instagram really was children's authors and then librarians and teachers who wanted to follow child literacy and see what was important there. And then Olivia started speaking at elementary schools and, and became kind of an influencer for her peers. She is finding her place in the world at a very young age. And it started long before she was 12, probably about five or six years ago. So I think this is really what digital citizenship is, is it's citizen development as well as child development and human development. And it's helping children find their place in the world. It's about purpose. It's about meaning. It's about becoming who you really are in the world. And that, I think, is citizen development. And I think it says a lot about parenting, too. Oh, that's a beautiful story. And I guess the screens were part of her finding her standing in the world. Absolutely. She couldn't have developed this following without 
these accounts on these platforms. And I think what it says is that there isn't some magical point where children become full-blown human beings. They develop their interests and their spheres of influence and their causes and their passions all along their growing up years from very, very early ages. And it's a complete joy to watch that happen. And that is really, I think, what the smartest, wisest child development specialists say is we, we need to create a kind of garden, an environment that nurtures that development in a child rather than try to shape the child ourselves because we could never know what is going to be meaningful to that child as, as he or she grows. I want to go a little bit tactical. So one of the... Oh, my, no, we're back to tactical. Yeah, no, one of my fears is when my daughter comes to me and tells me that she wants her first cell phone. And that's probably coming very soon. And maybe after hearing you, maybe I should not worry from that. But I wonder if there are any best practices on, on when kids should have phones. No. <laughs> I was kind of... After hearing you, I was... I, I knew that's what you're going to say. <laughs> no, well, I think our children help us know what the best practices are for them, for each one. And it, and it has a lot to do with whether or not the child is ready to take on that responsibility. It also has a lot to do with your values as a family. Why is it important for the child to have a phone? Is it really important to her? Is it because she says, all my friends have one mom or dad, right? And so you have that conversation. Really? Do all of them have it? And why do they have it? And what do they do with it? And what do you want to do with it? And then for some people, some families, it helps to have a kind of family contract around technology use, whether it's getting a smartphone or playing video games or, or whatever it is. And I think everybody signs that contract if, if you choose to do that, because parents have obligations too. If I pay for your phone and if I pay for the service every month, that is my obligation. So let's talk about what yours are and are you able to take care of the phone? Are you not going to drop it in the bathtub? Are you going to be able to have it with you when I need you to have it with you? And are you going to be able to not lose it? That sort of thing. And just keep having that conversation as the child develops because things will change and there will be more social uses for it. And so you'll have to think that through together. But I think together is sort of the operative word there. And once they get it, how do I keep the balance between letting them become independent or feel independent but making sure that I'm not falling prey to bad actors. Yeah, we know there are bad actors. The number of children who experience anything really harmful with bad actors is, you know, what the director of the Crimes Against Children Research Center, Dr. Finkelhor, told me is, is almost significant statistically inst- insignificant. So, very, very few children are harmed by a bad actor online. You know, in the last decade, we went through quite a predator panic, right? And parents were kind of led to believe that there were just predators lurking everywhere online. And it just wasn't the case. It depends on 
is the child playing Fortnite? And are there people who want to join the game and play with them? And so there are ways to deal with something like that. Very often, if you don't play alone, which a lot of kids do, or they just play with their friends at school when they come home, and in that case, they're going to be absolutely fine. If a stranger tries to join them in play, it's not going to be a big deal if they just keep the conversation to the game itself and don't share any personal information. So it's more like go with important basic tips that your child internalizes. Like, I don't share anything online that's personal about me with anyone. And I hang out with my friends, the people in my contact list on my phone, people I know in so-called real life. Those are just good rules of thumb that I've found children follow quite naturally. They are really not that interested in talking with strangers about creepy stuff. And they usually just leave or turn off the screen or whatever when that happens. They have that good sense and self-protection tendency. So we can trust that and we can trust them, but it's just good to have rules of thumb that are practical. So what other rules of thumbs would you recommend? So I had the, the great fun and privilege to sit in on hours of focus groups with kids in grades two through six recently. And it was just so fun to see how smart they are. And the fact that they had really internalized their, what I think were probably parents' rules or parents' advice. The four basic tips that these children shared, what they taught me was truly useful to them when they were playing games or socializing or doing, watching TikTok or whatever, is if you run into something that bothers you, turn off the screen and take it to mom or dad or the nearest trusted adult so they can help you. And that kids naturally do that if something sort of freaks them out and very, very rarely does it, they will talk to mom or dad and then never give out personal information, including your real last name, your address, your phone number, your passwords, whether it's in text or audio or video. And don't share any photos of yourself or pictures from inside your home. This is personal stuff. This is our stuff. And that will change as they grow older. They're going to share a lot of photos with a lot of friends, but they've already internalized that this is with people I know. And then ask permission if you're going to share something, a picture of somebody else. The third one is only let people you know offline follow you or get listed on your phone, in your contacts, or on your friends list. One child in, in this focus group found that their follower list had gotten up to like 250 or 300 people. And his grandmother said, do you know all those people? And he said, no. And so together they kind of weeded it out. They weeded out everybody that that little boy didn't know. And that was really a good little family practice on their part. And the fourth one is really for gamers. And in our family, we did this too. When you're Playing a game with people you don't know, you just talk about the game. That's it. And if someone you don't know joins, it's not going to be a huge deal. Just make sure you don't share anything personal. 
just keep it to the game. My sons always followed that and there never was a problem. And there are places online where contact with people they don't know can happen more commonly maybe, but we don't have to assume that strangers are bad people. Sometimes it's quite normal to play a game with people you don't know. So it's very, very contextual. And it's important to understand the context and be a little bit nuanced because your child's experience is going to be nuanced and individual and situational. Right. So I, I love those rules. One follow-up question. So you mentioned uh, with the followers and make sure that the, it's only people that they know. But isn't the whole point of uh, Instagram and Facebook is that you have, or even Twitter, that you start accumulating followers and having basically a crowd yeah. following you. So by definition, you want it to, to grow, your followers to grow. Or maybe I'm just thinking as an adult, not as a kid. But if you want the followers to grow, you have to extend it beyond the people that you actually know. How, how does that work? Because on, on Instagram, I'm guessing the kids want to have hundreds or maybe thousands yeah. of followers. Some kids, some kids don't care about it that much. It depends on the child. If the child has a dream of being a makeup artist or a serious athlete, or if that child's interest is about developing an audience, or even if they want to be a TikTok star or a YouTube star, yeah, they're going to want to develop a big following. But There's nothing inherently wrong with that. Probably the conversation that you need to have with your child is, is it all about a popularity contest? Is it all about showing off? Or is it about your interests? Is it about growing your audience because you want to share your talent or your dream? Which I think is perfectly legitimate. And you know, that may change next week. But it's kind of about the values and the intentions behind the behavior and the activity. So it's important to get at that, I think. So okay. one thought that occurred to me, it might be helpful to share is, and this goes to resilience and protection and all kinds of things. It was an epiphany for me a few years ago when I ran across the work of Marshall Duke at Emory University, a psychologist who talked about the importance of a strong family narrative. And this is kind of a luxury for some kids who maybe don't have a strong, strong family ties and a lot of support at home. But for children who do, and for parents who are engaged and thinking the way you are about raising their children, This can be a really helpful tool, and that is to just be clear as your children grow up on who we are as a family, where we come from, who your grandparents and great-grandparents were, and why that's important, and how our family acts on that. We respect other people. We believe in getting other people's perspectives. This is who we are. That helps develop a child's self-esteem and moral compass or inner guidance system, whatever you want to call it, the kinds of things that strengthen their identity production, their resilience development, their risk assessment, all the things that children have to do developmentally are 
shored up and strengthened by that strong family narrative. And that is true in all online things too, right? Whatever they do online, that supports doing it well and doing it safely. That's a fascinating concept. So family narrative, is that something you talked about with your kids? Who are we as a family? Or is that something that it's just hundreds of small conversations that you have on different topics that basically accumulate into a family narrative? Yeah, I think it's more the latter, but it helps to be conscious about it. It helps to realize that this gives them a sense of who they are. This supports their own identity production as they grow up. And so when you're conscious of the value of that, it does come out quite naturally in different conversations. I shared with you before the conversation my scorecard. And I'm just curious, what do you think about this concept of the scorecard? Well, I love, I really love the mission and the values expressed in it. And I think that's what's important. But I'm not sure about the scorecard metaphor. And I can tell you why. It's because a few years ago, I went to a game and education conference at University of Wisconsin. And I heard a talk by a game design professor, Scott Nicholson at Syracuse University, talk about gamification and meaningful gamification and describing the difference between the two. And what he said is, the first is about motivating through external rewards, just gamification. It creates a kind of dependency or an addiction to inputs outside oneself in order to sort of level up or progress through a game or life. Whereas meaningful gamification, he said, is about intrinsic rewards, which satisfy, motivate, and empower people. So those rewards are things like mastery or competency, autonomy or agency, and a sense of relevance. So I think about a little child learning how to ride a bike. Once they get it, once they just like go for a good 20 yards without falling. They're so excited. Their eyes are big. Their face lights up. That is an intrinsic reward. It's huge for a child. And so it's great to have that sense of gamification with words like scorecards, and, but it's important that it's meaningful to the child. And we're not shaping them. We're creating the environment where they can grow successfully and joyfully and powerfully. And that's what we want as parents, I think, not to just turn them into doctors or lawyers, right? So the scorecard, I think it's a shared scorecard, right? I agree. Uh, Yeah, I totally agree. But do you think that we have a role to play? For example, because I think one of my roles as a parent is to help them develop empathy or a sense of a growth mindset so they can develop mastery. Yeah. Do you think we have a role here or is that completely up to them? Well, I think I've been saying along that absolutely we have a role and it's a guiding role as well as a supporting role. There's no question about that. Okay. But I think sometimes we forget that it's not, all about us. Right. 
I can't agree more to that. My next question is, what book would you give to other parents? Well, there, there are several books, but um, first and foremost, I love Alison Gopnik's The Gardener and the Carpenter. Why? Her metaphor is really kind of what I've been talking about all along. The gardener is the parent who is creating a space where a child can grow and flourish, creating the conditions that support that child's growth. The carpenter, to put it simply, your child is not a chair. <laughs> the carpenter is creating that chair from the ground up, right? And shaping it and making it what that carpenter wants it to be. And we are not carpenters as parents. And that's a really simplistic description of her book. There is so much more in there. I love that her chapter on technology is chapter eight. It's toward the end of the book. You know, I'm saying that because this whole conversation is not really about our technology. It's about our humanity. And our technology is just part of that now. And I love how she put it in there contextually. I started reading it, by the way, uh, thanks to you. Good. <laughs> yeah. um, I think you'll find it useful. Yeah, so far it's fascinating. How would you define success as a parent? I don't feel I can define it by myself or with my partner. In other words, I can't define success as a parent without my children's input. Okay. And did you have this conversation with them? Because they're older now. I haven't really had this conversation with them. There are a lot of things that we've done through the years together. And a lot of things I've said to them through the years that kind of add up to success, I guess. But the biggest symptom is love. They feel loved. And they know that we have their backs. And they come to us because they want to feel that love. They know it's here and not because they feel obligated to come see us. So I guess to me, that is the ultimate success. And it feels so good as a parent. That's beautiful. And in retrospect, what was one or two, the best decisions that you did as a parent? Well, my husband gets the credit for this, but I think the best decision we ever made was to just drop everything rent the house out, sell a car, and go around the world for 10 months with our boys and have them experience many, many different cultures and perspectives and languages and see how much goodness there is in the world. And you feel that shaped them? Absolutely, yeah. It definitely shaped them. Okay, so maybe we'll do a follow-up episode just to talk about those 10 months because uh, there's probably so many lessons learned from that. Yeah. But I guess my last question would be, what advice would you give to parents that are just starting the parenting journey? Have fun watching your child learn and grow and seeing what your child can teach you. All right. So All thank right. you, Anne. This was great. Yeah, really lovely talking to you. And the advice. And thank you for all your podcasts. I've listened to several of them and they're powerful. Thank you.
I left this conversation with a changed perspective about screen time and about our online routine at home. Up until the pandemic, I saw screens as the source of all evil, and I tried to minimize it at all costs. We hardly watched TV at home, and the kids had very limited access to other types of screens. Come the pandemic, all their schoolwork came online. They have been spending many hours in front of the screens, and I personally kept feeling that I'm failing as a parent. The conversation with Anne was very refreshing and reassuring. Reflecting on it, I had four key takeaways. Number one, screens are not the source of all evil. And as anything in parenting, online or offline, it is our parenting, the environment, the school, that will predict the kid's ability to cope and succeed in life much more than how much time they spent in front of screens. Number two, screen time is too much of a general term. Break it down to activities, online learning, games, videos, and work with the kids to determine the right time to spend on each, if any. Number three, be with your kids as they play games or watch videos. Use this time as an opportunity to better understand their world, the way they think and the way they interact with others. Use this time to gently guide them on what to do and what not to do online, but make sure not to cross the line by being too authoritative and lose all the magic, as Anne calls it. And lastly, number four. It was a good reminder that our role as parents is not to shape them, but rather to create an environment where they can grow joyfully and successfully. Stick around after the show note to hear why we parents should lighten up. Thank you all for listening. For show notes, please visit RaisingToRise.com. Your support is greatly appreciated and I'm looking forward to continuing the parenting journey together. We were painting our house. We had, I don't know where, our older son had a play date or something. Our younger son was a baby in a little seat. So we just put him out on the lawn while we were scraping and we were working with a painter and he was an expert in Native American spirituality and he had a book. I think it was Navajo, you know, religion or whatever. He went on, he took people on vision quests and he did sweat lodges and amazing guy. And, but he, you know, like when you encounter a certain animal, that animal has a message. And in this book, it describes what that message is. So Doug is telling us all this. I go on a a mountain bike ride to take a break and I'm on this trail and up 10 yards ahead of me is a coyote. And he, he comes out of the, the bush, the scrub oaks, and he stops on the path and looks at me. And then he, he moves on. And I went back to the house to do some more work. And I told Doug about this. And he said, oh, wow. Coyotes are really shy. They never do that. They never stop on the trail in front of you and look at you. And much less come out of the bush when you're around. And he said, so you know what Coyote was saying? And I said, no, what? And he said, lighten up. <laughs> 
because Coyote's a trickster, right? He's very clever. He's a joker, according to the Navajo faith tradition. So I realized, oh my gosh, I've never forgotten that guy because I'm kind of an earnest, serious person. And that's like a mantra for raising children. (laughs) So I had to tell you. I love it. Yeah. (laughs) 